Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, delegates all, to episode 9 of the Delegation Game. We have a very loaded episode in store for you all today, as if there was any other kind of Delegation Game episode, so I'll keep this introduction brief. I will start by saying that the players, Lith, Lilia and James, have still not informed me of the delegates they'd like to play as, so I'll be choosing for at least one of them today. As soon as these two players let me know who they'd like to play as, I'll happily replace them, but for their foreseeable future... Lith Lilia, you are now representing Marshal Ferdinand Foch, but James, you have one more week before I assign someone to you. For the moment, I'll be posing as Marshal Foch, since Lith Lilia is not really signed up to any of those things, like the Facebook chats or the group for the delegation games, so get on that, Lith Lilia, if you want to make the most of this game. I'll be posing as Marshal Foch, and I'll be doing my best to answer all the mail that comes in. I'm already playing as Nicola Pesic and Sean T. O'Kelly as well, so yeah, I've already got a very busy schedule. So if Lith Lilia could take up Marshal Ferdinand Foch's duties, that would be swell. Today we'll discover just how prominent Lith Lilia's delegate will be, as our episode is rocked by two main events. The first one created by the passage of a successful scheme. Ooh, interesting. The second one imagined by me as a realistic response to the unfolding situation in Europe. Without any further ado then... I'd ask you all to hold on tight, dear delegates, as I take you all to the heady atmosphere of Paris in this very alternative Paris Peace Conference. The Hotel Zachary was buzzing with activity. In one antechamber, a stone's throw from his bedroom, 
Polly Mons and Generous Dinglebrush were seated. The mood was sombre and downcast. After a week's worth of suggestions, the delegates had found no common ground on the subject of reparations. In fact, they seemed more divided than ever before. The American delegation had provided the loudest opposition to the proposed plans, on the grounds that Washington would be required to foot some considerable bills and forgive equally considerable debts. But Amons believed in his heart of hearts that America could withstand such demands. Europe, and certainly Belgium, could not withstand much more without the necessary injection of funds. Emons looked to his left. Dinglebrush was seated next to him, his yellow waistcoat straining under the pressure of his large stomach. Dinglebrush had recently informed him of this meeting, a place where all the discontented delegates could meet together, but Emons remained unconvinced of the utility of everyone meeting all together in this place. In the far corner of the room, those figures who could potentially help the cause of reparations were standing. All of them were loudly whispering, and none of them seemed particularly pleased with their lot. The albatross around their respective necks was equally as heavy and problematic as the one which threatened to strangle Polymons. That albatross was Russia. More specifically, the current situation unfolding in the Russian Civil War, where Admiral Kolchak had recently launched an offensive from Siberia, only to be met by relative silence from the Allies. Much like they had done with reparations, the delegates had proved completely unequal to the task of arriving at a solution for arranging intervention in the Russian Civil War in support of the Whites. Rumour had it that there was considerable discontent in Paris itself at the suggestion of sending more soldiers to foreign lands to suppress a state led by the people. Paul de Mons wondered, as he had found himself wondering many times before, whether Russia was simply an impossible problem which would never be solved. One could do their best to prepare for its threats, but they could never tackle these threats directly with an invasion. History had taught Europe that in previous centuries. If Napoleon had been unequal to the task, then what chance did these ragtag group of delegates have? Of all the faces Polymons could spot in the group, Dmitry Robotnik seemed by far the more troubled. It was his homeland, after all, that the delegates continued to render a disservice to. The only hope they had would be to somehow whip the delegates into line, with a stark demonstration of the dangers of Bolshevism and the necessity of ridding the world of its ills. But then, not even the assassination of Clemenceau, the discovery of Alexander Kerensky's body, or the vanishing of Kaim Weizmann had done that. Imons wondered whether Bolsheviks were involved in any of these crimes at all, but he had to admit it made sense. These were all figures who had, at one point or another, stood against the Bolshevik tide. Now that they had been removed, like a dam from a great river, Europe was threatened with its complete submersion under the wretched ideology unless it pulled together. That had been the main aim of meeting today, on Wednesday morning the 27th of March 1919, to sort out their differences and as disappointed but mutually interested delegates come to some sort of arrangement. Imons was dubious if it could be done. In the room now were Poles, a Russian, the Dominions and Belgium. What chance did they have of collectively reaching a consensus on these two issues, let alone supporting each other long enough to make the Big Five listen. Delegates and citizens alike wanted an end to war, and for money to flow from the coffers of the vanquished. They wanted justice, but they couldn't define justice. They wanted to suppress Bolshevism, but they couldn't agree on how to do it. They wanted to penalise the central powers, but couldn't reach a decision on how to quantify that punishment. The most they could agree on, Imons knew, was that Bolshevism was bad and that somebody should pay for what had been endured. The delegates opposite began walking over, with the Poles leading the way. Gentlemen, Paderewski began, we appreciate the time you have taken out of your busy schedules to gather with us today. We hope that together we will be able to arrive at a settlement which will please us all. First, let us discuss the matter of Russia and the dangers of Bolshevism. It was a piece which Paul Mons had heard countless times and he never fully felt convinced. Bolshevism had torn through the veil of security which he thought was present in this city, but Imans did not believe that this warranted an ill-planned expedition to Russia to rid the world of that ideology. Much as he wanted to believe it could be done, Imans could not bring himself to believe that all these moving parts and conflicting interests could possibly cooperate or coexist. It would be up to these Polish and Empire delegates to persuade him otherwise. Newfoundland is willing to provide what it can, Arthur McCallville began. 
Although our flesh is weak, our spirit is strong, we will pledge 500 expertly trained marines to this task of intervention on the side of White Russia. Imams looked at Dinglebush, who was scrambling to locate Newfoundland on the world map laid out in front of him on the table. For whatever reason, Dinglebush's finger was hovering over Latin America. Imams rolled his eyes. Louis Botha, delegate for South Africa, spoke up next. While far removed from the ills of Bolshevism, the brave and industrious folk of Africa will do all it takes to uphold peace and prosperity, freedom and security throughout the world. South Africa pledges, for this task, a brigade of 1,000 veterans of the Boer War, experts in horsemanship, tracking and guerrilla warfare. Imans couldn't help but roll his eyes again. Why did Botha continue to live in the Boer War era? What good were these Boer commandos going to be in Russia? Before anyone could answer, David McKay spoke up. A man of sense, of renown in military circles, he had seen the worst aspects of a fruitless war on the shores of Gallipoli. Would he voice caution or action? Something was in the water, it seemed, as David McKay cleared his throat to speak, before proclaiming, Australia is, and will always be, on the side of the democracies. We have no quarrel with the Russian people. We have fought and died with them against the forces of the malignant Turk. Yet in this current state of affairs, where the dark cloud of Bolshevism hangs like an ominous evil over our proceedings in Paris, it is my firm and established belief that unless we band together to rid the world of this menace, Bolshevism will one day grow so insurmountable and formidable that it will overrun all the decency of this world. For this reason, I intend to pledge an Australian brigade of 10,000 men, all of whom can be expected to do their part for Russians and allies alike. Imans couldn't help but be impressed. In fact, he found himself becoming swayed by the idea, if not the execution, of a grand allied army launching a crusade for decency into Russia. Before he could think further, Dinglebush proclaimed, In the name of Belgium, of God-fearing Belgians and Bolshevik-fearing Belgians everywhere, I pledge my sword to the cause of this fight, and I commit to bring whatever volunteers I can find to aid in this cause. Polly Mons was both horrified and impressed at the same time. He had to admire Dinglebrush's bravery, though he shuddered at the thought of this man in command. Dmitry Robotnik spoke up next. Gentlemen, I am very encouraged by your show of support today, and I can only hope that Russia will see the fruits of your labours in its final freedom from the yoke of this oppression. Pray tell me, Monsieur Borden, can you speak for Canada? Canadian Premier Sir Robert Borden could speak for Canada, and he made a speech of similar quality to McKay's. Canadians everywhere, boomed Borden, believe in the righteousness of this crusade, as they believe in the sacred value of all human life, and the inherent justice of democracy. I will in due course return home to Canada to appeal to the Parliament in Ottawa for support and volunteers. You have my word, Monsieur Robotnik. The Poles remained standing slightly off to the left, a group of only three men now, where there had once been double that number. Paderewski continued to hold the standard of Polish unity and ambition. Pavel Lobova, long seen as the brains of the operation, looked dishevelled and utterly overcome by strain. Lobova glanced repeatedly over at Sir Robert Borden, staring daggers as he did so. It was only a couple of months ago that Lobova's colleague had shot and killed Joseph Doherty, the colleague of Borden's. While the tumult of the last few weeks had buried the worst of those old feelings, Lobova was still overcome from time to time by pangs of sadness and guilt. Bogna Kudzal turned to face the seated delegates and exclaimed, Gentlemen, Poland will contribute what it can to the anti-Bolshevik cause, but the mission remains one of persuading the Allies, particularly the French and Americans, to put their soldiers where their rhetoric is and make a united front possible. Lobova nodded in agreement, adding, We believe that in the next week we should make a joint appeal as a united group to the Council of Twelve. Through such petitioning, I am sure the interventionist case, which delegates have expressed a majority support for, will not die. Paderewski then added his own two cents. The days are getting longer, gentlemen, which means that we will have more time to act in Poland's interests. I urge you all to maintain the pressure, and in God's good time we will arrive at a peace for Russia and at a final sum of money which will be guaranteed and acceptable for all. 
Hollymans was impressed by this coherent and passionate statement of unity from the Poles. As he had expected, the meeting had been dominated by the Russian question, rather than those dealing with reparations. Baby steps, though. By associating himself with these delegates, there would at least be strength in numbers among those who had a vested interest in cooperation. By establishing this base of support, perhaps they can move on to more challenging persuasion campaigns. The meeting adjourned shortly afterwards. Rumour had it that next door a far more successful and upbeat meeting was taking place between the enthusiastic Greek Premier and the British. Imans couldn't help but resent others for having the easier job, but Greece at least had claims to greatness of culture and influence which should be respected. If that ancient beacon of Western civilization could be properly honoured, then perhaps this conference wouldn't be a total loss. Paul Imans was careful, though, not to hold his breath. In the next room, indeed, a very different scene was taking shape. The Greek Premier sat with the two British delegates, Fitzwilliam and Tancred. A splendid conclusion, Venizelos exclaimed. Splendid, 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 my friends. With this compact, Greece can be assured of its security and sacred rights to the Aegean, and Britain and France can continue to wield justifiable influence over this historic region. Sir Alistair Tancred was seated with his feet up in a chair, and Arthur Fitzwilliam was beside him, puffing on a cigarette. The Greek Premier was standing. We are glad that Greece will be satisfied with this proposal, Tancred said, and please be advised that the Prime Minister wishes to give you his warm congratulations as well. Soon enough, the Mediterranean will shed its medieval baggage and its old scars, and be ready to embrace the more civilised, cultured world. Please understand, Monsieur Venizelos, Fitzwilliam then added. Cooperation with Britain and France is essential for the future of Greek interests. We would ask you that you remain wary of Italian designs and Albania proper, and that you inform us when Greece is in a position to provide troops for an expedition into Bolshevik Russia. Rest assured, gentlemen, Venizelos replied. I fully intend to return this favour and to represent those two great empires to all peace-loving Greeks everywhere. You have my word, as soon as the time allows. Greece will provide military aid, but I must impress upon you all that this is an important step and not the final word. Greeks remain isolated and alone in Smyrna, under threat from Turkish reprisal and in fear of their lives. Christian lives are at the mercy of the terrible Turks still, just as they were hundreds of years before. And until such portions of Anatolia come under the jurisdiction of the Athens government, I fear Greece will never truly be free. Tancred looked at Fitzwilliam, who made a face and then sighed. Monsieur Venizelos, Tancred began, you have from us a pledge to do right by Greece. If the people of Smyrna are in a position to demonstrate their loyalty to the common cause of Greek unity, then I am confident the world will not remain silent to their desires. I hope so, Monsieur Tancred, Venizelos replied. I must confess that while this arrangement will satisfy many, those proponents of a greater Greek empire remain transfixed upon the attainment of lands in Asia Minor, above all in Smyrna, a city populated overwhelmingly by Greeks and Christians. I have it on good authority that the situation on the ground in Smyrna and in Athens is such that the initiative may well pass from my hands if we do not make a preempted decision soon. Fitzwilliam raised an eyebrow. Monsieur Venizelos, I hope you are not seeking to threaten or pressure the pace of progress here with idle threats. All three men were suddenly aware that the mood in the room had dramatically changed. Venizelos's facial expression in particular had become much more strained and serious. Certainly not, gentlemen, Venizelos replied. I am not in the habit of making idle threats. How does a German pay for a large French meal? By cheque, as he apologises for being so hungry. The joke made him cringe as much as it made him laugh, but Albert Clavel made sure to chuckle politely nonetheless. They owed the Hungarian countess that much. It had been nearly a week since they'd last promised to give Lady Nora Chalk an audience, and now that it was finally her turn in the sun, it was only right to laugh at her jokes. It was Thursday morning, the 28th of March, 1919, and Clavel, chairing the Council of Twelve that day, was determined to listen to what this Hungarian had to say. There was a mood of palpable tension in the room. This time the tension didn't come so much from the delegates present as from the mood outside. 
Paris had been alight for the last two days with gatherings and demonstrations of increasing size. The streets were presently flooded with people, dissatisfied French citizens, but almost certainly some agitating Bolsheviks as well who were trying to stir the pot and overturn the delicate balance which was in place. Slogans and placards made Clavel wince. He had been transported from his lodgings in the Hotel Zachary to Stephen Pichon's room at the Quai d'Orsay under heavy-armed escort, and he had then seen the city awake from its slumber and the groups of citizens begin to congeal in certain corners and on some open squares. Opportunistic assassins would surely be lurking in wait, and increased security was the best way to guard against their attacks. That had been the old method of thinking. Increasingly, Clavel was thinking that it may well be safer to move the conference in its entirety to outside of Paris, or even to outside of France. Officially, the police and the army were on standby to quell the demonstrations, which were making everyone increasingly nervous. But at the same time, it was impossible to deny that the man on the street had tapped into something real. The war had been won, and yet France was evidently, somehow, losing the peace. The various and tumultuous crises which had rocked the conference in the last three months had been disconcerting, to say the least. But worse still was the fact that France was no closer to securing what she needed from her allies. The Rhine and a continuation of the wartime alliance, those two things she really needed, had not been delivered. And as if, and as if things couldn't get any worse, the Allied Council had been inexplicably joined by two German delegates, with rumours that they would soon be joined by Austrian and Hungarian perhaps even Bulgarian and Turkish counterparts. Albert Clavel lived as though in a dream. He could not put his finger on it, but there was something in the air over the last few days which sent a shiver down his spine. Had they all pushed the people of Paris too far? In late 1870, after all, with the Prussians at the gates, the citizens of Paris had risen up and established a commune rather than admit the reality of the situation. Could circumstances here lead to a similar situation? Or would the end game be more extreme still? Would the storming of the Bastille happen once more, with the Quai d'Orsay as the new target for the mob? Clavel admitted that he felt increasingly unsafe. Even his security guards seemed to sneer at him. When he asked about the progress of the investigation into Kerensky's murder, the police chief had told him point-blank that he would not talk to traitors. Clavel had had him fired. René Massigli insisted that he had had no choice, otherwise everyone would walk all over him. The mood of the last few days, the uninspiring progress which had been made, and the violent outbursts of the French people had continued to make him sick with worry. Was it any wonder that he felt safer in here in this room, face to face with the German enemy, than out there where the mob could reach him? Supposedly everything was going according to plan. Greece had been very pleased at the progress which had been made, and wounded soldiers had been given cause for optimism as well. But failure crowned other efforts. There remained no uniform reparations policy for the Allies to pursue, and that interventionist mission into the Russian Civil War, a cause which had appeared so popular on paper, refused to produce any workable solutions or schemes which might be used to answer its challenges. The Russian delegate, Dmitry Robotnik, continued to wander, moping and sulking around Paris. Maybe such activity wouldn't be safe for much longer. Clavel had doubled his guard outside the Quai d'Orsay, but one could never be too safe these days. Paul von Leto Vorbeck rose from his chair, speaking and reasoning that Germany would help defend Hungarian territory, but that for the sake of peace in Eastern Europe, Romania must also be invited to speak for its interests in Transylvania. The Germans had increasingly come to view that troublesome region as an impossible problem, and they longed for others to solve it. And yet, the Germans continued to do the majority of the talking. Clavel found it difficult to even get a word in, and the Americans weren't even present today. Reportedly, Woodrow Wilson was on the way with the American delegates in tow to present a particularly important case about the Rhine. Wilson had urged those present to start without him when Lady Chalk arrived. Clavel suspected that this was because he couldn't care less about Hungary and that American relations with Romania were favoured instead. There remained much confusion about precisely how much danger Budapest was in from the Bolsheviks. Lady Nora Chalk informed those present that no significant Bolshevik initiative had been launched in the Hungarian capital, but she continued to urge those present in the Council of Twelve not to be complacent and to commit to a concrete policy of some kind in Hungary and Russia alike. 
concrete policies, Clavel regretted, had not been produced by those present for some time. The next item on the agenda, it seemed, was Marshal Ferdinand Foch and his appeal regarding the Rhine. Clavel sighed loudly when he read this. Foch had never been his biggest fan, and he continued to loudly lampoon Clavel's premiership for the losses to Germany, and even, according to some, for Clemenceau's assassination itself. Once Lady Nora had left the room, Clavel would probably inject a stiff drink of some kind to prepare himself for Foch. He could not let the wiry commander see just how terrified he currently was. Clavel glanced at his watch. It was nearly noon. The Americans would be on their way now. You must put me in touch with your supplier, Monsieur Nabuaki, Prince Sharoon said, sipping greedily on his tea. This is one of the finest teas I have ever sampled, and as you know, the royal court of Siam is flush with such drinks. Baron Makino Nabuaki nodded in agreement. Oh, he knew all about the royal court of Siam, all right. It was all Prince Sharoon ever seemed to talk about, when he wasn't loudly expressing the need for all of Asia to joined together in a common alliance against the West, that is. Nabuaki sometimes wondered whether the Parisian heir had made Chiroon more radical since his arrival. Either way, he was a useful ally to have. I will gladly fetch you another tea, your grace, Nabuaki said, gesturing for the servant to come over. This was too incredible a view to leave behind. The sun shone weakly above, marking the peak of spring and perhaps the turn into summer. There was not a cloud in the sky, and from their garden balcony on the 11th floor of the Hotel Zachary, they could see far into the distance. The River Seine sparkled, and birds chirped loudly above them. It seemed like a scene straight out of a novel. Here, far above the streets, there was no hint of the rupture which was said to be imminent between the people of Paris and its government. No hint of the anger, the fear, or the anxiety. It was perfectly still, as nature had intended. Nabuaki convinced himself that if he used his binoculars, he could see pockmarked hills in the distance and flattened forests. This was the horrendous impact of man upon nature. This was the crop which they had sown. And this was why they were here, to heal the world and get it back on track. He understood that the French citizenry were resentful, but Nabuaki found that he had little sympathy for them or any other European nation. They had all been reluctant to relinquish what was rightfully Japanese territory in Asia, so it was hard for him to feel any sense of sorrow or empathy for these same Europeans when they ran into difficulties at home. This was the great reality of their weakness, coming home to roost. He found that, in fact, there was a certain amount of glee which a foreigner such as himself could take from the situation. Nabuaki glanced down at his newly filled cup of tea. Something was wrong. Ripples were appearing in the tea. The table upon which the cup and saucer sat was beginning to rattle. Prince Chiroon was equally fixated on his fine china, and for the same reason. Your Excellency, Chiroon began, do you hear that? Nabuaki could hear it all right. In fact, he could almost feel it. It was the sound of shouting mixed with loud footsteps, screams, and perhaps even gunshots. The sheer volume of people, eleven stories down, no less, seemed to be shaking the very foundations of this building. Great God! Prince Chiroon whispered. Look! The Siamese prince pointed to the Arc de Triomphe, which could be seen not too far in the distance. The entire structure was coming down. With angry but also jubilant shouts and screams, Nabuaki watched distant figures pull and push as the structure collapsed. What vandals, what extremists would do such a thing? Where was the police? Where was the army? Where was the order in this wretched city? At that moment, Nabuaki spotted something else, and he felt a sinking feeling come over his stomach. From their perch high above the streets, they could spot, among the violent protesters, men and women of all shades, but also those wearing distinct uniforms. The army and the police were taking part in the demonstrations. They had helped pull down the Arc de Triomphe. They were actively contributing to the disorder. Nabuaki heard screams from directly down below. He immediately jumped up from his seat and rushed to the balcony. Straining his neck and looking over the edge, Nabuaki attempted to peer directly below where, eleven stories down, he could see the actual entrance of the Hotel Zachary. From the smoke and loud crashes and shots, it seemed as though the guards of the hotel were engaging with several figures in a firefight. 
impossible, Chiroon whispered, evidently in a state of complete disbelief. Without thinking, Nabuwaki looked back to where his servant had been standing. In the commotion he had left his post. Had he just left them to die? In the next room he knew his more loyal servants were quartered. Leaving Chiroon on the balcony, he burst into their quarters. All the men present were already arming themselves, expressions of grim determination upon their faces. Your Excellency, one of the men said, we are not confident that it is safe for you here. You must come with us. We will escort you and the prince to Versailles or perhaps Brest, where the situation is far more calm. We will never make it, my friend, Nabuwaki said. We must hold up here, defend ourselves, and if necessary we must die where we stand. Do you know who else is staying on this floor? I believe it is the Bedouin prince, Prince Navar Sharif, Your Excellency. What a stroke of fortune. Perhaps if he was lucky, Nabuwaki would get a chance to see this warrior go to battle after all. Nabuwaki unsheathed his sword. Gentlemen, those who have honour, accompany your leader now. Monsieur Otomo, you stay here with the prince. Guard him as if you were guarding me. Yes, sir. A tall, well-built Japanese tank of a man dressed in black bowed low before him. They will never reach the prince. Nabuwaki then took a deep breath and with his five followers, he unlocked and pushed open the door into the hallway. Their situation was strategically grave, no real way down and trapped on the eleventh floor. Above them was the roof, below them the unfolding crisis, which would surely see the mob triumph, as it overran the ground floor security. When that happened, the mob could be expected to sweep up each floor, killing or mauling everything in its way. Nabuwaki found himself cursing, the French government in their hubris, had clearly underestimated the sheer fury and passion of the Parisian people. This underestimation may well be the death of him. The hallway was at least quiet and empty, though. The mob hadn't reached them yet. Nabuwaki crept forward. Two men in front, three men behind. A man at the front heard voices and held up a hand for them all to stop. Around the corner could well be the first in a long line of ruffians sent to murder them all. The man at the front unsheathed his sword slowly, but as he was doing so, all hell broke loose. A huge figure tore around the corner and assaulted him repeatedly with his bare hands, punching him, striking him over and over again. In the flurry, delivered with such terrifying speed and precision, Nabuwaki was ashamed to admit that he felt a flicker of fear and hesitation before this turned to relief. This wasn't a member of that mob from down below, It was the Bedouin prince they had come to find. Prince Sharif, Nabuwaki yelled. Your grace, stop! As quickly as he had begun laying into his staff, the Arabian giant stopped. Sharif turned to Nabuwaki. He had a cut across his left cheek which looked fresh. Your Excellency, the Bedouin exclaimed before embracing Nabuwaki warmly. Nabuwaki felt immediately better knowing that this man was on his side. In their journey back to his room, Nabuwaki learned more from Sharif about what was happening downstairs. This was the third day of demonstrations, and the different factions in France on the right and left had proclaimed a day of disruption and violence. Sharif had read in the paper that morning that Germany had been permitted to keep Alsace-Lorraine, a blatant untruth which explained the peak levels of anger which Nabuwaki had recently seen. With Clemenceau gone, evidently nobody had been able to control the French press, and they had relied instead on rumour, mixed with their own worst fears. Nabuwaki also realised how fortunate he had been. Sharif told him that the first sign he had had of the violence was when his own servant had attempted to stab him to death. This explained the scratch. Nabuwaki didn't need to ask what happened to that servant, and Sharif did not venture to explain. Then Nabuwaki found himself shuddering. Was his own manservant assigned a similar mission? Perhaps that man hadn't simply fled to save his own skin. Perhaps he had also bottled an assassination mission as well? Just how far did this whole thing go? I have heard it is the work of the Bolsheviks, Prince Sharif said, but he didn't sound particularly convinced. After the botched attempt on his life, Sharif had come to protect his friend Nabuwaki from harm, which explained his high state of alert. He had already apologised profusely to the severely damaged member of Nabuwaki's staff, and had even promised him a pension as recompense. The man had simply bowed, gingerly, and declared it an honour to exchange blows with such an opponent. Nabuwaki made a mental note to promote that man for his bravery later on, 
if they ever lived through this ordeal. Knocking on Nabuwaki's door, the small party of men went back inside. Chiroon mercifully was unharmed, and his protector, the hulking Otomo, bowed as they entered the room, his eyes widening when he saw Prince Sharif enter. Your Excellency, Sharif said, I recommend we fortify ourselves in this room. We have all the strategic advantages one could ask for, including a bird's eye view of the unfolding crisis, and we also have another important advantage which they aren't even aware of down there. Nabuwaki raised his eyebrows. Oh, really? What's that, Your Grace? They think I am dead, Monsieur Nabuwaki, Sharif replied with a smile. It will be the greatest and final mistake they will ever make. Nabuwaki couldn't help but crack a smile himself. If any single man could conquer the Arabian Peninsula, he was confident that Prince Navoir Sharif could do it. Thirty minutes earlier, down on the street level, the American delegation was attempting to make its way from the Hotel Zachary to the Quai d'Orsay. What is the hold-up? Woodrow Wilson barked impatiently at his driver. Mr. President, it seems there is some kind of demonstration underway. I will signal for the convoy to turn around. That task alone would have been considerable. One car was leading at the front. Another was in second place, carrying William Randolph Hearst, Joseph Zahn, and Walter Cameron. In third place was a car carrying Oliver Flanagan, Bruce Pug, and Teddy Roosevelt. In fourth place, mercifully, Wilson had his own car, just him and the driver, and behind him was an additional car for security. It was quite the convoy, and, as Wilson was beginning to realise, quite the advertisement for unruly Parisian malcontents. He had warned Clemenceau, Poincaré, and now Clavel, that Paris was no place for such a conference. He could feel his face twitching again with the stress. His head was throbbing. Get us out of here, driver, Wilson barked again. We are late enough as it is. Out of the corner of his eye, Wilson could see a policeman running towards them. The car in front opened its door and the policeman got in. What a strange scene. Were there not American delegates in that car? The reason for the policeman's urgency quickly became apparent, as a group of about ten rough-looking individuals loomed into view. They were armed with clubs, but one of them held a revolver. Law and order had evidently completely broken down. Good God, Wilson whispered. Mr. President, we need to move now, his driver exclaimed, reversing out of the convoy and driving through a side alleyway. Bins were knocked over with the manoeuvre, but it did the trick. Wilson looked back and saw the other cars in the convoy following suit. It was then that he became aware of all the noise. It was like a river or a torrent, and it sounded like it was fast approaching. Emerging from the side street, Wilson's car came out into an open avenue. To his right was the river Seine, but... To his left, about 100 feet away, an incredible sight was approaching. Wilson could see the front of an absolutely enormous march approaching him. Flags were being waved, some with the tricolour, some with the Soviet hammer and sickle. Smoke was pouring forward. Among the crowd, he could spot soldiers and policemen's uniforms. The whole city had broken down. The other cars in the convoy caught up with them now, as well as a new car which stopped beside Wilson's vehicle. A familiar figure got out and opened the door. Suddenly, Edward House was sitting beside him. Wilson had to admit he was happy to see his friend. Mr. President, thank God, House said. We have to leave. I fear Paris and perhaps France itself teeters on the brink of civil war. We must evacuate you to the nearest place of safety. Where is that, Colonel? Wilson asked. A strange sense of calm coming over him. We're taking you to Brest, Mr. President, and if the situation continues to deteriorate in this country, then we'll evacuate you to London if necessary. But whatever happens, we cannot stay here now. I fear that a revolution is underway. Someone must be leading this revolution, Colonel. Someone must be responsible for this. House flashed the President a look of sympathy. He realised that their recent falling out had meant the President had become increasingly uninformed. Their time apart had evidently not been good for Wilson in other ways. House didn't remember when he had last seen the President so worn down. I have heard several names, Mr. President. Some say a royalist candidate is leading the way. Others say the Bolsheviks. But the rumour, I believe, more than any other, 
is that which says, Marshal Ferdinand Foch is attempting a coup. Wilson made a face which told the whole story. Foch had gone rogue, unless the rumours were untrue, which seemed unlikely given the President's lack of contact with that Marshal and his general absence over the previous weeks. Had Foch been plotting this all along? Driver, take us to Brest immediately, Wilson said. Wait, the trains are not safe, Mr. President, House interjected. We must go there by car then, Mr. House, Wilson exclaimed. Perhaps it will give two old friends the opportunity to make up for lost time. As he said this, Wilson smiled weakly. He needed House now more than ever. Back in the Quai d'Orsay, the assembled delegates had allowed the veil to slip. The loud and approaching commotion outside, in addition to the continued absence of the Americans, compelled David Lloyd George, Lord Balfour, Albert Clavel, René Massigli, Horton von Holzendorf and Paul von Leto Vorbeck to move to the balcony of the third floor, where they could get a better view. Has anyone seen Herr Renner? Horton von Holzendorf asked, his voice shaking. I would be greatly worried for his safety if he was caught up in that storm. Paul von Leto Vorbeck remained calm and collected throughout. Parisians liked their demonstrations. They reveled in their act of protest, and occasionally they did get out of hand, but the state would prevail and security services would act. Lloyd George, standing at the edge of this large balcony with binoculars, was mumbling to himself and to Lord Balfour, who was standing beside him. René Massigli, in a bid to calm his nerves, had begun pruning the shrub which dominated the outside wall of the balcony, as Albert Clavel spoke quickly to him in French. It wasn't apparent to Horton von Hotzendorf whether Clavel was in fact calming Massigli down, or whether he was trying to calm his own nerves. Either way, nobody answered his question about Karl Renner's absence, and all turned to pay attention once Lloyd George let out a loud exclamation. "'What is the matter, Herr Prime Minister?' von Leto Vorbeck asked. "'Gentlemen, I'm afraid the situation in Paris is worse than we imagined. I can see policemen and soldiers taking part in the demonstrations.' "'God, order really has broken down,' Balfour exclaimed. Albert Clavel suddenly felt the eyes of those in his company focusing on him. Did they expect an explanation? From this vantage point, they could almost spot the Hotel Zachary, and smoke was pouring out of a window on the second floor. None of this boded well for the future of the conference, but perhaps more was at stake even then. Gentlemen, rest assured, France's security forces will restore order and control to the situation. Von Leto Vorbeck looked Albert Clavel up and down, and turned to Lloyd George. Herr Prime Minister, it was my understanding that you had soldiers in residence in this city. Can they be called in to help suppress the demonstrations? Lloyd George bit his lip. I'm afraid that is quite impossible, General. It would be in politique indeed if British soldiers began firing on French citizens, crazed or not. Furthermore, it is strategically impossible, as the vast majority of our soldiery had been moved out of the city to engage in military manoeuvres. Von Leto Vorbeck became exasperated. Military manoeuvres? Herr Prime Minister, for what purpose could those veterans be needed to engage in such exercises? Lloyd George, without blinking or revealing any emotion, simply said, The exercises are being undertaken as a precaution, in case Germany became difficult. At the moment he finished the sentence, the door into their room burst open, and three French soldiers stormed in. The soldiers marched across the length of the room, as the six leading representatives of their nations looked on, half hoping, but also half-fearing about what would happen next. The soldiers stood to attention at the door of the balcony, rifles cocked and resting on their shoulders. And then he entered, Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Albert Clavel could hardly believe what he was seeing. He felt his knees go weak, he felt his hands shaking. Was he about to be shot here in the French Foreign Office? As Foch walked into the room, he kept his eyes locked on Clavel at all times. The marshal's uniform was immaculate as always, but there was something extra fresh about it today. He had put it on for a purpose, and not just to advise the delegates on military policy. Marching towards the door to the balcony, Foch stopped and stood perfectly still. Evidently, he had thought a lot about what he was going to say, 
But before he had the chance, Horton von Holzendorf, in perfect French, asked what everyone feared to ask. Marshal, von Holzendorf said, what is the meaning of all this? Foch stared at him, hostility plastered across his wrinkled, weather-beaten face, and for a moment Clavel was convinced that the marshal would shoot von Holzendorf right then and there. Instead, Foch boomed. Prisoners of war will not speak unless spoken to. Horton von Holzendorf and von Leto Vorbeck in turn made puzzled expressions, and von Leto Vorbeck attempted to interject. Marshal, he began, before Foch interrupted him. Enough, General. According to all the terms of international law, France and Germany remain at war, and in such circumstances, enemy commanders represent prisoners of such a war. You will now be escorted to La Sante Prison. If you resist, you will be restrained. All enemies of France will be arrested, and order will be restored in this wretched conference. Lloyd George then interjected with a typically Lloyd George-esque speech. See here, Marshal, my respect for your accomplishments is boundless, but this is a flagrant act of treason against a lawful government. You must stand down now before the mob reaches us and roasts us all on a spit. Foch looked at him incredulously, before saying, Prime Minister, who do you think controls the mob? They follow my orders, as do the police, the army and the civil service. We've been waiting several weeks to act, and over the last several days... I hoped that the sham cabinet of Clavel and Massigli would listen to the discontented voices and do the right thing. But in vain have we hoped for the humiliations now taking place in these halls to end. I have therefore been forced, along with the French High Command, to take matters into my own hands. For the sake of France, for French honour, and to redeem the sacrifices of the 1.5 million men in the war, I will not, I will never stand down. Not until France has been awarded her rightful concessions, and not until Germany has been crushed underfoot will my homeland ever be safe again. I will never sponsor a peace which gives France any less than complete satisfaction, and anyone who opposes me is my enemy and the enemy of France. It was quite the speech, and probably a variation of the speech he had intended to make before Horton von Hotzendorf had interrupted him. Lloyd George let it hang in the air. Apparently the Prime Minister was the only one unfazed by this turn of events. Or, at least, he was the best actor. Lloyd George then said, Okay, Marshal, you have the power, you have us cornered here, but imagine what the reaction across the world will be when it is learned that you accosted the leading statesman of the world. Lloyd George paused for a second and then asked, Marshal, what have you done with President Wilson? A flash of frustration went across Foch's face. We have not been able to locate the American president, but if we had, my men would not have done him any harm. Albert Clavel could bear it no longer. Who do you speak for? he shrieked. Tell me who has pledged to be loyal to the constitution of this country and to me, only to stab me in the back now. You think I want to compromise with these Germans? You think I enjoy letting our war aims go? You think that more violence is the answer? The country is in mourning, Marshal. If you do whatever it is you plan to do now, then the cycle of death and destruction... We'll begin all over again. Foch scoffed at him before walking right up to Clavel and looking him directly in the eye. René Massigli walked out from behind the shrub he had been pruning and now he had a revolver in his hand. Stand down, Marshal, Massigli said, his voice barely above a whisper. Foch's face turned from hostility to surprise. Evidently, he had not expected this from a politician. Monsieur Massigli, Foch said. If you shoot me, you'll be dead within seconds, but this revolution will continue. What revolution? Clavel barked. You intend to make yourself emperor? You are no Bonaparte. Not emperor, Monsieur Clavel, just president, Foch replied. Poincaré is under house arrest, as you will be soon enough. As president of France, I will reverse the pathetic policy which you and others have sponsored, to the shame of France. Clavel, without thinking, spat directly at Foch's face, tears in his eyes as he did so. Shame, Clavel yelled. Shame on you, Marshal. You defile the memory and life of Clemenceau, or have you forgotten who it was that made you who you are? That defiant gesture was the last straw, 
One of the three soldiers shoved the butt of his rifle into Clavel's stomach and he doubled over in pain. At that, Masigli upped the ante by firing his revolver into the air, causing everyone to grab their ears in pain. Somehow, Masigli remained standing, apparently unfazed by the loud sound in such an enclosed space. A trickle of blood betrayed him, though, and it moved slowly out of his left ear. Go now, gentlemen, Masigli said, gesturing to the German and British delegates. Go to your governments and tell them what crime has been committed today. I will stay with Albert, and whatever punishment our new Bonaparte attempts to dish out, I will take it on the chin. By now Foch had righted himself after the initial shock and was evidently astonished. Rest assured, Foch said. I cannot guarantee your safety if you go into the streets. My people may fire upon you. Masigli stepped forward and placed his hand on Clavel's shoulder. They will take their chances, Marshal, Masigli said, before glancing over his shoulder at the four men. Go now, gentlemen. Use the fire escape and get to safety. After a brief moment of hesitation, Lloyd George realised he was too important to be taken prisoner, and he obeyed. As the curious standoff continued between Masigli and Foch's soldiers, Lloyd George and the other three men stepped back out of the room. Evidently, Foch was cautious indeed about potentially harming foreign dignitaries, especially such senior ones as the British Prime Minister and Foreign Minister. The four men, two Brits and two Germans, rushed down the fire escape, clanging loudly as they did so. Mercifully, it led to a quiet side street. A few overflowing dumpsters lined the alleyway. But there was also, somehow, a government vehicle with its engine running just a few feet away. A figure stepped out as they approached the car. It was Karl Renner, the Austrian Chancellor, with blood on his uniform but apparently unharmed. A gentleman, Karl Renner said. I regret that I could not stand with you, but when I was on my way I was set upon by several ruffians who must have recognised me. I came to the conclusion that you might be in danger, so I commandeered this vehicle, and I tried to find a way into the Quai d'Orsay, but then I saw you standing on the balcony, so I waited here. Chancellor Renner, von Leto Vorbeck exclaimed, you may well have just saved us and the peace of this world. Where are we going to go now? Lloyd George asked. Do not fear, gentlemen, Renner replied. I have received word that the American president is alive and has made his way to Brest. The railways are not safe, so we will have to travel by car. Brest, yes, of course, Lloyd George exclaimed. We should move the conference to London immediately. Renner nodded. That is my understanding, Prime Minister. Perhaps the streets of your capital will be more stable than these streets now. We should leave immediately, Balfour said. What of the two French delegates, Clavel and Massigli? Horton von Hotzendorf urged, and Renner looked at them all for an answer. It is too late, my friends, Lloyd George said. The best we can do is honour their efforts to get us out of this wretched city safely. Have you received any word on the status of the other delegations, Herr Renner? Von Leto Vorbeck asked. What of the integrity of the Hotel Zachary and its residents? There was some urgency in the general's voice. It is my understanding that most made it out and intend to follow the president to London, Renner said. He then sighed. I have also been told that some individuals have chosen to throw their lot in with the traitorous general. Much of the staff at the Hotel Zachary have cooperated with this new regime, and some even tried to assassinate a few delegates. Good grief, Lloyd George exclaimed. The world has gone mad. The five men walked back to the car a few feet away. I'm afraid it is a bit of a squeeze, gentlemen, Renner said. I picked up a straggler along the way. Charles Shear lay in the back of the car, his face a bloody mess. The mob caught him and broke his nose, the poor chap. Apparently they blame him for the loss of Alsace-Lorraine to the Germans. Von Leto Vorbeck looked more confused than ever. But we never gained Alsace-Lorraine. What is the meaning of this outrage? I suspect Marshal Foch has been stirring the pot, General, Karl Renner said. This falsehood fits perfectly into his narrative that the Germans have shamed France and that Clavel is complicit in this shame. What do you think they'll do to Monsieur Clavel? Horton von Hotzendorf asked him, with palpable concern. Lloyd George then put it in. Gentlemen, I know the situation is troubling, but we really must leave as quickly as possible before the mob catches us here. Herr Renner, where is your driver? 
You're looking at him, gentlemen, Carl Renner said, taking driving gloves out of his pockets. Don't worry. You're in safe hands. The next morning, many miles away in a distant villa on the outskirts of Rome, Vittorio Orlando was awoken by a clerk. Pardon the intrusion, sir, but urgent news needs your attention. Vittorio Orlando sat up in the bed. Maps, plans and dossiers littered his large bed, and he indicated to the clerk to allow whoever was waiting outside to enter his room. As they entered, Orlando gasped. It was none other than Bonifacio Fidel. Monsieur Fidel, what brings you here? Orlando said, noting that Carhu Rosnak was standing behind him. Monsieur Orlando, Fidel began, I have just come from Paris, and I regret to inform you that the city itself seems to be entirely in revolt. I have heard it from several sources that Marshal Foch had launched a coup and intends to make himself president. All delegates that can have escaped to Brest, where they intend to resume the conference in London. Vittorio Orlando blinked several times. Had he heard Fidel correctly? Fidel didn't wait for the Italian premier to respond. Monsieur Orlando, I know we have had our differences, but I came to you now because I believe we have a perfect opportunity to help each other. With me now is Karhu Rosnak, the Slovenian delegate, and you will want to hear what he has to say. Puffing on several cigarettes, so it seemed, Karhu Rosnak stepped forward beside Fidel. The time is right, Monsieur Orlando, to take advantage of the situation and distraction among the Allied camp. I have seen the anger which consumes the mob, and I would hate for such anger to explode in revolution here in Rome. So I urge you, do not fight this mob, Signor Orlando, but harness it. Take what you can, now, while the Allies and their baseless rules cannot be enforced. Might will make right, Monsieur Orlando, but to fail to act would be the gravest sin. Orlando couldn't believe what he was hearing, but Rosnak elaborated. Currently, Monsieur, there is considerable support in my country to throw off the Serbian yoke. I urge you to invade the Balkans through Fiume, defeat this faux kingdom of the South Slavs, and restore both Italian and Slovenian pride all at once. Then the defeat of Serbian aggression can be at least one positive to emerge from this terrible mess. Orlando looked at Rosnak, then looked at the military plans on his bed, then looked at Bonifacio Fidel. He had prayed for a sign, for a way to heal the divisions of his country, for a way to save his ministry, for a way to achieve Italian satisfaction. From these unlikely sources, from a revolting French capital, from a closet Zionist delegate, and from this chain-smoking Slovenian, such deliverance had apparently arrived. Vittorio Orlando took a deep breath and simply said, Gentlemen, Call in General Cadorna, and let's begin. And that, dear delegates, is the end of the episode. That was a big one, wasn't it? An awful lot has happened over the last hour, and if you weren't aware, the coup launched by Foch is the result of a successful scheme, which has effectively changed the whole game. While yes, it is impossible that such explosions could actually have happened, At least now the delegates seem to have given up on Paris and will be moved by next week to London. We will cover all that activity in next week's episode, so for now I'll leave you to ponder what has just taken place and how it affects your delegates. Maybe you'll all band together and put aside your differences. Maybe you'll actually solve Russia this week. Hint, hint. Maybe East and West will receive a wake-up call and work together on a proper, lasting Treaty of Versailles. Although, I suppose now it will be called the Treaty of London. Vittorio Orlando's opportunistic gambit to secure Italian interests is an interpretation of the historical record which I have put in. Combined with the evident opportunism of the Greek Premier, it suggests that conflict will become a very real element of this peace conference for the foreseeable future. I did warn you all that consequences would follow decisions like welcoming the Germans on as accredited delegates, and while perhaps this explosion wasn't what I'd had in mind, I feel it is a justified and even realistic reaction, especially in light of Clemenceau's death and rampant French dissatisfaction. So on that note, I will take my leave, but please join me next week where we pick up this incredible tale. How will Foch's enlightened presidential dictatorship proceed? How will Albert Clavel and René Massigli fare in this new Paris in La Santé prison? 
How will the dispossessed delegates react to this fiasco and revolution? Tune in next week as your humble chairman reveals all. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.